As you know or have heard me talk about, I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan, and even though my favorite team is not doing as well right now as I'd like for it uh, to be doing, I still watch them every night, or at least when I can. I still keep up with, with things. But I have some other favorites from baseball who did not play for the St. Louis Cardinals. And one of those is Yogi Berra. I, I, would, I would suggest that, that Yogi Berra is one of the great treasures of our country. I mean, not only was he a great baseball player, Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees, I don't know how many world championships they won when he was their catcher, but he perhaps became even more famous after he retired from baseball because of his little one-liners that have become known as yogiisms. Any of us familiar with yogiisms? I have a couple of books in my library that are just devoted to things Yogi Berra said. You might could say he is even a philosopher of sorts. Let me share with you some of his famous quotes. Now listen carefully. I mean, you have to be really smart to pick up on yogiisms. Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> if you don't know where you are going, you'll end up someplace else. You can observe a lot by watching. Maybe his most famous, it ain't over till it's over. But maybe my favorite one is this one. He was, the, the context of this, he was actually giving a friend of his instructions on how to drive into his neighborhood and get to his house. And he said this, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. We have often come to a fork in the road. Perhaps we knew which direction to go, maybe to the right or maybe to the left, or perhaps we have come to a fork in a road and didn't know which way to go. And, and maybe we made the wrong decision or the wrong choice. Because when you, when you come to a fork in the road, you have a choice to make. Uh, a similar concept might be to be in limbo. We, we've all heard this phrase, right? And, and I would imagine we know what it means to be in limbo. But just in case you don't, let me share with you how in limbo this little phrase is defined. Well, first of all, it's used in Roman Catholicism to describe a region on the border of hell or heaven serving as the abode after death of unbaptized infants and of the righteous who died before the coming of Christ. A second definition for this phrase, to be in limbo is to be in a place or state of oblivion to which persons or things are regarded as being relegated when cast aside, forgotten, past, or out of date. 
A third definition is this. To be in limbo is to be in a place or state of imprisonment or confinement. And then the fourth definition that you will find in a dictionary for this little phrase, in limbo, is to be in an intermediate state, to be in a transitional state, or a midway state or place. And so much like to be at the fork in the road, to be in a state of limbo is to be in an in-between place. A related term is liminality. Liminality was derived by uh, a cultural anthropologist by the name of Victor Turner. A few years ago, he went uh, to uh, the nation or, or the uh, country of Africa, southern Africa. And in visiting several uh, ethnic groups, he developed this term liminality to describe the transition process accompanying a fundamental change of state or social position. He especially studied younger boys as they grew up in their various tribes and began to reach a, uh, an age of adulthood. Here's what he discovered. Situations of liminality in this context can be extreme, where the participant is cast out of the normal structures of life, is humbled, disoriented, and subjected to various rites of passage, which together constitute a form of test as to whether the participant will be allowed back into society and to transition to the next level in society. And what Turner discovered in uh, especially studying 12, 13, 14-year-old boys was the impulse was for these young men to find a road back to the old life but they would discover that the old rules no longer applied. They simply would not work for them at this point in their lives. And so because of this fact, liminality becomes a place of undefined potential where something new can be discovered, where even though the future is uncertain, it need not be something to be afraid of or to be fearful of. I want to suggest this morning that liminality can be used to describe God's people, descri describing a boundary, a threshold situation, a fork in the road that we often face. Now think about this for just a moment. When you look at Scripture, when you read the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, think of times when God's people were in limbo. They were in a state of liminality. They had come to a fork in the road and a decision had to be made. Future a little unclear. Future a little scary. Think about some of those occasions. 
What about Noah and his family in the ark? What about Moses wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? What about God's people when they were carried over into Babylonian captivity? Understanding that the promise had been given that a faithful remnant God would raise and would send back to Judah and to Jerusalem. What about Esther and her situation? She is, she is chosen as queen. And word gets out that Jews, her people, are about to be annihilated. Holocaust is about to occur. And her uncle goes to her and says, You know, perhaps you have been made queen for just this moment. In, in this, this state of in-between that Esther finds herself as she prays to God and seeks wisdom from God to approach the king on behalf of her people. What about the New Testament? If there was ever a person in a state of liminality, it would have to be Mary. No other mother has experienced nine months like she did. I mean, she was carrying the very Son of God. What about Jesus himself? He is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist and is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days of being tempted. God is, is preparing him for his public ministry. Perhaps the darkest state of liminality that God's people ever experienced. What about Jesus' closest disciples from the time he was placed in that tomb on a Friday afternoon and before his resurrection on Sunday morning? I mean, they were in between. Later, when Jesus ascends back to heaven, what about that, that period of about 40 days before the day of Pentecost, Pentecost as they were told to wait, to go to Jerusalem and to wait? This, this time of, of in-between. Wouldn't you like to know what questions they were asking each other? What, what plans perhaps they were, they were anticipating? What, what would really happen on that day of, of Pentecost? And you could even say that the church age, the time between Jesus ascending back to heaven and the time of Jesus' return that Ken reminded us of just a moment ago, that we are living in an in-between state as God's people. We've just completed, in the Bible class I've been teaching on Sunday morning, a, a study of 1 Peter. And there, Peter uh, makes the point to these isolated Christians in northern Asia Minor that were beginning uh, to suffer persecution because of their faith in Jesus, that they are sojourners, they're travelers, they're strangers in this world. Uh, this world is, is not our home. 
We're just a passing through. Make a good song, wouldn't it? And, and so this, this in-between state. Well, I would even suggest, as you might imagine, you're probably already ahead of me a little bit, that often local congregations find themselves in states of liminality. It may be because of certain circumstances, certain events, a change in leadership, a change in preachers. I mean, you've experienced that. So I, I, I think we all can, can kind of understand what it means to be occasionally in limbo. We, we, we've come to a fork in the road, In which way do we go? Now, before we get to Lamar Avenue, let me share with you some information that was just recently made uh, available by uh, IMP. You're familiar with IMP, Tim Woodruff, Grady King, and the gang. Over the past five years, IMP has assessed 50 congregations and churches of Christ in which they have helped these congregations uh, in choosing or selecting a minister. Nearly 9,500 congregants uh, responded to these surveys. And I checked with Grady to be sure the data that was collected here at Lamar Avenue is included in this study. And quite honestly, the summary is alarming. What they discovered, what IMP discovered about churches of Christ right now at this point in our history, three things. Number one, what they call the grain of our membership. We, churches of Christ, are growing old. Secondly, what they refer to as evangelistic laryngitis. We are not retaining our own children nor bringing new people to faith. In other words, we're not a, as evangelistic as we once were. And then number three, what they call ossification. I'll admit, I had to go look that word up. But it means to become hardened, to become rigid and inflexible. And what Woodruff and those who conducted this study uh, what they suggest is the reason we have become rigid and we've become inflexible is because we are growing old and we're not bringing new people in. And so based on, on this report, we could say that churches of Christ are in a state of limbo, a, a condition of liminality, where some decisions need to be made. I mean, I mean, think about it. If, if we are not recruiting, converting, baptizing younger people, I mean, what eventually happens? We cease to exist. So when I received this report, understanding and, and confirming that Lamar Avenue was a part of, of the data, I couldn't help but think, about our situation here. Number one, what I discovered, we too 
are growing older. Uh, the most recent uh, database that we have, if you count all adults and all children, uh, our number would be 487, which, th this is a sidebar, how cool would it be if every Sunday all 487 of us were here? I mean, look around, who's not here? Let's, let's, take, let's take it upon ourselves to look around, to notice who's not here, and give them a call. Take them for a cup of coffee. Invite them over. Uh, I mean, in, in, with, a, with a congregation this size, no excuse, but the reality is sometimes we just kind of lose people who fall through the cracks. Right? But 487, okay, listen to this, 22% are under the age of 20. 21% are between the ages of 20 and 49. So you can do the math. That means that 50 per, 57% of us are over the age of 50. Which, and you know, you don't like to be morbid, but how many of us are going to be here in 25 years or 30? And, and so if we are not reaching younger people, where will we be? I mean, I'm excited about September 8th, right? Oh, come on. I'm excited about September 8th. How about you guys? Yeah, all right. And, and, the, and the cool thing about that is to think about 150 years from September 8th, when this church, if the Lord doesn't come beforehand, will celebrate 300 years. But, but what can we do right now, right here, to ensure that 300-year celebration takes place? I want to suggest that this summer that we might see, see ourselves as being in a state of liminality as we look forward to September 8th and as we celebrate 150 years and as we begin to plan and program about the future. Because we need to ask ourselves the question, are, are we reaching new people? And maybe we need to ask that, that other question, have we ossified? Have we become inflexible? I mean, we have a good church. Jim Collins would say, good is the enemy of great. I want to be great. And the only reason I want to be great is because I think that's what God wants us to be, right? Reaching people and alive, and electric, and attracting people, not, not just to us as a body of people, but to our Lord Jesus. And, and so, so this summer, let's, let's think in terms of, of being in between. In between the past 150 years and looking forward to the next 150 years, 
in, in, in assuming that responsibility that that 300-year anniversary celebration, it begins with us. Now, I've got some shocking news for you, but none of us are going to be around for the 300-year celebration. We can be there, though, in spirit. And as John reminded us a few Sunday nights ago at, out at the old Antioch Cemetery, uh, this place is surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And don't you want to be a part of that? So, this brings us to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And you know the story. Uh, Kyle read a portion, or somebody read a portion of that. Who read that? I didn't recognize the voice. Who was it? I am so envious of good voices. You know, you kinda, I'm just kind of stuck with southeastern Oklahoma, but it sounded great. These, these guys with radio voices, I, I wished I had, but anyway. So you know, you know the situation. In Numbers 13 and 14, Moses has led Israel out of Egyptian bondage. The descendants of Jacob had been in Egypt for over 400 years. And they are on their way to the promised land. And they, they have moved from Egypt and they're on the very threshold. They're at a crossroad. Some decisions had to be made. And so in Numbers 13, uh, Moses calls the people of Israel together. And he tells them to choose one representative from each of the 12 tribes. And they are sent out into the promised land, the land of Canaan, to spy out the land. And, and they come back and they report on what they had seen and what they had experienced. And they confirmed, yes, indeed, the land is flowing with milk and honey. But notice at the end of 13, uh, chapter 13, we know, of course, that Caleb and Joshua gave a very favorable report. They were ready to go and possess the land. But let's pick up reading the text in verse 31 of chapter 13. But the men who had gone up with him said, that is, with Caleb, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so even though Caleb and Joshua spoke before the people and said, let's go seize our inheritance, God will fulfill his promise. There were ten of the spies who gave that report. And so notice what happens then in chapter 14. 
That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of uh, Jephthunah, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but... The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. I want us to notice five things from this text uh, this morning. uh, Emphasizing the example of Caleb and Joshua. Who, because of their faith, and because of their trust in God... could could see the land was there for their taking. The land was there to possess. That God would fulfill His promise. And to think about these five things in in this, this context of being in this condition or state of liminality. That, that we, we stand at a crossroad. And in in understanding, we we need to get younger. We need to be uh, reaching younger people and younger families. And and asking asking some serious questions about where we are and where we need to be as God's people. Number one, i got to catch up here. There we go. Number one, don't listen to naysayers. And after, after I made the slide and put this, put this on uh, my, my notes, I thought, I should have said, don't just be a naysayer. We, we wouldn't have to listen to any if none of us are naysayers. And we're not, we're not talking about these huge things that are going to create this big upheaval. But the reality is, if you keep doing things the same way, you're going to get the same results, right? And the waters in our baptistry are not being stirred very often. I mean, we we need to just recognize that. And so we're 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 not talking about compromising anything about the gospel. Please hear me on that. But, but we may need to do method, methodologically some things differently. And, and think about it, we, we have done that forever. I mean, we have used bus programs 
and VBS, and marriage enrichment seminars, and gospel meet, all sorts of things with the purpose of trying to reach more people. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about here. And, and, I, and I understand that, that sometimes some of us don't like those things. Right? So don't be a naysayer. Which leads us to number two, don't complain about leadership. I'm I'm excited, I'm excited that our elders are going to be a part of this Sunday morning class. And I'll just just go ahead, I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of give you a preview here. They're, They're going to ask all of us, preacher included, to, to raise our level of commitment. And, and they're going to ask us to take more seriously our vision statement of connecting with God and the unity of all believers and restoring all things. And so there's going to be, there's going to be a greater emphasis upon our vision statement. You know, this church is to be commended to have gone through a process like that. And, and so we have this, this wonderful tool, I'll, I'll call our vision statement a, a, a tool to, to kind of keep us focused on what we need to be doing as God's people uh, to, to help us to enhance our evangelistic effort and to be sure we remain a very prominent light in this community. And, and they're going to they're gonna ask us, to think about participating in a life group. And so there will be an emphasis upon that in this Sunday morning Bible class. And and they're going to challenge us to be more committed to a Sunday morning Bible class. And and the importance, the importance of, of, of being together in a Bible study every Sunday. And of course, encouraging us to be here for worship. And to be here on on Wednesday nights and take every opportunity we have to be together and to be involved in things and invite our friends and and family to join us. Number three, remember the good old days might not be that good. It, It seems almost incredible to me that after this report, there were people who actually wanted to go back to Egypt. What would Pharaoh have done if they went back to Egypt? He'd have probably slaughtered all of them because they had left in the first place. He, he certainly would have enslaved them again. And, and so we, I, I mean, I can be... I can be guilty of, man, man, the 80s were wonderful. Even though I saw my nephew tweet out yesterday about how wide the ties were in the 80s. I don't know where that came from. But returning to the past may not be as good as it seems to be. And so we, we plan for the future. And and even though we don't really know what the future looks like, we can still trust in our God. 
Number four, we need to do what is right whether anyone else does or not. I mean, the odds were stacked against Caleb and Joshua. I mean, no, no one else, no one else wanted to follow their encouragement. I mean, they were, they were all alone. And, and so as, as pressure begins to mount against them, they tear their clothes and they cry out. We read the text of this great statement of faith. The Lord is with us. Appreciated so much uh, James Paul's prayer this morning reminding us that the Spirit of God lives within us. And, and, and be, why? Because we are His temple. And, and that is true both individually and, and corporately in a communal sense. 